Dear family, if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to uh, Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. We'll be reading it in its entirety. And just to give you a, a, a preview of what we're about to see, uh, I would like to divide this passage up with five blocks. And so the first block is Acts 10, 1 through 8. And that's when God comes to Cornelius. Cornelius is a Gentile. He's non-Jewish. And the irony here is that God starts this vision or his movement with a Gentile first. And then God appears to Peter in verses 9 through 16. After that, Cornelius' servants arrive for Peter in 10, 17 through 23. And they bring Peter back. And uh, Peter enters the home of Cornelius And it's full of other Gentiles, which is section 24 through 33. Peter preaches in verses 34 through 48, and the Holy Spirit comes upon uh, all of the Gentiles in the room. But also draw your attention to the fact that Peter's given a vision, a vision of food uh, that is now clean. Leviticus 11 outlined a set of foods that Israel were not allowed to eat. We don't know why they could eat uh, this fish and not eat shrimp, why they could eat beef and not eat pork, that on some, some level it looks kind of random. Uh, but we do know that Israel were set apart and to be different, different in their attire, different in their speech, different in their worship, and even different in their diet. God was setting them apart as a different nation. And what God does in our passage this morning is declare clean what he himself had previously declared unclean. And you might be wondering, how could God do that? How could God change his mind? God can do what he wants. He's God. If he can take people who were unclean and make us clean, then surely he can say those animals that he declared unclean are now clean. I think these animals are a parable. They're a parable about people and the people who ate those animals. That what God is after in this passage is not just the freedom that we have now to eat pork if you choose to, or eat shrimp, or eat catfish if you choose to. But we also have an invitation to have table fellowship with people across ethnic lines. And that would have been radical for Peter. And it's right before us. This is Acts chapter 10. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius. He was a centurion of what is known as the Italian cohort. He was a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms to the poor, generously to the people. And he prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, which is 3 p.m., he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come to him and say to him, Cornelius, And Cornelius stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, the angel, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa, which is 30 miles away, and bring one Simon who is called Peter. This Peter is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. And when the angel who had spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour, which was noon, to pray. And he became hungry, and he wanted something to eat. But while they were still preparing it, 
he fell into a trance, and he saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said to him, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate, and they called out to ask for the Simon who was called Peter was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, who was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guest. The next day he rose and went with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. We know that this is six other Jewish men who went with Peter to Cornelius. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshiped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with them, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked you, why then did you send for me? And Cornelius said four days ago about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard. Your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is the Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed this Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And this Jesus of Nazareth went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. And they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. 
While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him to remain for some days. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we turn our hearts to your word. We thank you that you are not like the gods of this world. They're deaf. They're dumb. They're dead. They're foolish. They're not eternal. You are not like them. You speak. You're alive. You redeem. You make new. You draw near. And your kingdom will endure forever and ever and ever. Thank you that the veil of unbelief has been removed from our eyes and our hearts. And we can see the wonderful things of your gospel. Thank you for your word. It is timeless. It is living. It is active. And to the degree that your preachers are faithful to proclaim it, you are pleased, Lord, to give life and light and goodness and hope to your people. So I pray that. Make me faithful to rightly divide your word. May your people be built up, challenged, and encouraged in the faith. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Sean Lucas, when doing some research for First Presbyterian Church, digging into their history, he came across a frightening statistic. He lists a number of churches. Point Breeze Presbyterian Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Central Presbyterian Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. United Presbyterian Church in Wheeling, West Virginia. Central Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi. What do these congregations have in common? They were, at one point, thriving, significant churches in their cities, pastored by gifted, conservative men, and they're dead. They no longer exist today. Now, the reasons why churches die that that list is as various as the congregations themselves. If congregations can die, so can ours. He goes on to say that it would take a generation for a church to show signs of decay, but here are some reasons. Perhaps poor pastoral choices, a failure of the pastor to rightly preach God's word faithfully, a deviation of a church from its mission and vision, an inability to see and to adapt to the community around it, this is enough to drive pastors and churches to our knees. I think what Lucas is getting at is how easy it is to drift. It's easy for men who preach to drift in integrity, to drift in the beautiful high calling that Jesus gives us to shepherd the flock. It's easy for parishioners to drift, to drift from this vision, 
to drift towards making this church like a country club and not a hospital. But we lodge all of our complaints on the ways the church isn't serving us. And we're forgetting that this is a place where we are inviting other broken sinners to join and journey with us. It's easy to drift from our mission and vision. And so for the next few weeks, the entire month of June, I'll be unpacking different aspects of our vision. And here's a question for you this morning. I'm not going to quiz you today, but I may quiz you on the fourth Sunday. How many of you right now, without looking at your bulletin, from memory, can tell me what's the mission and vision statement of this church? Do you know it? You see, I'm convinced that if we don't have that embedded in our hearts, we'll drift. And so today I want to interrogate one part of our vision statement. Why did our founders, those 83 people who helped plant Redeemer in 2003-2004, why did they aspire to be an intentionally multi-ethnic community of Christians? Why is that of all things in our mission and vision statement? Because it means it's a value. It means that it's a priority. It means that it is something that we want to measure ourselves by. It means that this is something that we desire to see the Holy Spirit bring about in our midst. Why? Why is that important? So I'm going to give you three points today. I want to talk to you about the difficulty of impartial multi-ethnic fellowship and everything is around impartial because I think that's what Peter realizes that God is not a respecter of persons that God is impartial and the hard part is seeing this massaged and worked out in churches and so why is why, why is it difficult for humans to live this way the second question will be well not a question but the second point will be the impartiality of God demands that we journey towards impartial, multi-ethnic fellowship. And then I want to end with some of the blessings of impartial, multi-ethnic fellowship. So let's start with the difficulty. Y'all, it's hard. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm gonna, I want to do a, a sort of a panoramic look at why impartial, multi-ethnic fellowship is hard. And I'm not going to start in the church. Let's start in the world. So a few weeks ago, my wife and I went to New Orleans. And if you go to the World War II Museum and walk down the street, you may or may not see a heart with our names written in it because the cement was wet. And we were walking and we got to, it was like, we got to do it. We, we have to do it, right? So if you're at the World War II Museum, you may see our initials on our anniversary with a heart. That it, it's there, right? No, but seriously, beautiful thing about the World War II Museum, um, it's just enlightening. If you're not a history buff, I'd encourage you to go and, and spend three hours there you will walk away, I think, appreciative of things that I think we take for granted. 
But here's what you learn about World War II, that ethnic supremacy spread like cancer throughout our world. The intent of Adolf Hitler was to kill non-Germans. The Japanese got involved, and they wanted to kill the Chinese. The Italians got involved, and they want to conquer Ethiopia. Ethnic supremacy spread across the world like cancer. I don't have to mention to you the history of our country. You know about American chattel slavery. You know about the trail of tears and the displacement of Native Americans. I don't have to mention to you the history of Mississippi. We're watching a documentary a few days ago and Sesame Street in 1970 had this brand new idea to do an episode of Sesame Street with a black man in it. And he was going to be acting next to a white man. And you want to know the only country, the only state that would not allow Sesame Street to show that in 1970? You live in it. Mississippi. You know, you live in a city named after Andrew Jackson, who owned over 350 slaves, had plantations in Cahoma County, and right outside of Nashville, Tennessee. I have to rehearse this to you. You know this. And black people, we don't get a pass. Did you know that there were freed slaves in the 1860s who went to Liberia and they wanted to enslave Africans in Liberia? You watch the movie Hotel Rwanda where you see genocide between the Hutus and the Tutsis. In Australia, you have Australians, they hate the native aboriginals. You have apartheid in South America. That when you look at our world and you look at every epoch in history, every continent, that what you will see, humans, black, white, African, European, Chinese, Japanese, you name it, we all wrestle with this sense of ethnic superiority. And when ethnic superiority is present, you will always see an unnerving spectrum of ethnocentrism. And on that unnerving spectrum, you will see at best separation from, and you turn that up a little more, subjugation over, and you turn that a little more, and you will see slaughter. Always. And we would be mistaken to think that we don't see this in the Bible. Think about the Egyptians. They hated the Jews. And at first they're separated. Israel's living in Goshen and, and Egypt is living over here. 
And all of a sudden, a new Pharaoh is, he, he comes into power. And what does he want to do? Subject them, make them their slaves. And when they grow in number, what does he want to do? Let's kill off all of their boys. This is the paradigm when ethnocentrism is in, the, in our hearts. We're going to always see it manifested that way, always. And we would be fooled to think that it didn't work the other way, that Jews somehow made it through the Bible and the Bible does not also call them out on suffering from the same thing that had happened to them when they were in Egypt. This is why God has to say over and over and over, don't mistreat the poor, don't mistreat the stranger, don't mistreat the sojourner, because remember, you were poor. And you were a sojourner, and you were a stranger. And so what, what is at work in the hearts of even the people that God delivers is the sense that when you free me, I'm now the king. And it's what you see, I think, in our passage. That Peter tells us, and this is the Lord who comes to Peter with this vision. Peter is hungry, and he goes up to pray. And all of a sudden, a sheet or a tablecloth is let down from heaven. And on, on this tablecloth or this sheet, all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there was a voice that says, Peter, rise, kill, eat. And Peter's response is, Lord, no. I've never eaten any of those unclean animals from Leviticus 11. And then God has to say, what God has made clean, do not call common. And this happens three times. Three times. Where God tells Peter, rise, kill, eat what I have made clean. Do not call unclean three times. And Peter says, no, no, no. It sounds a lot like Peter when he denied Jesus, right? Do you know him? No, no, no. And Peter does the same thing in our passage, so much so that when it ends right there in verse, uh, where is it? Where it says Peter was inwardly perplexed. It's written uh, in the imperfect tense, which means that when Peter was commanded three times to go do this, he was inwardly perplexed, but it means that he stayed there over and over and over and over, saying no in his heart. No, no, no. Did you catch what Peter said when he finally went to Caesarea, into the house of Cornelius, a Gentile? And when he walked into the house, it wasn't just Cornelius, the Gentile. It was Cornelius and cousin them and little cousin them and his Soldiers, like, like when, when Peter got into Cornelius's house, I can just see him stop. Like he, he comes into the door and he's like, whoa, right? And, and the muscles in his body, they tense up and his eyes raise and that wrinkle comes across his face because he has never been in a Gentile's home in this way before. As a matter of fact, he tells the Lord, Lord, I have never ever in my life eaten what is unclean, which I think Peter is saying, I've never had table fellowship with anything unclean and anyone unclean. Look at the first thing out of Peter's mouth when he starts to preach. Look at verse 28. He said to them when he got there, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or clean. So right there, the, the dream about the food was bigger than the food. It was about people. Peter's saying, I've never eaten un anything unclean. Not from my birth. I wasn't raised this way. And the word for unlawful can mean indecent. 
And this is probably how we should interpret that. Because there is no rule in the Bible that says Jews could not come in contact with Gentiles. You can remember plenty of instances in the Bible when Gentiles interacted with Jews. They built their temple because Jews traded with Gentiles. The Queen of Sheba and her court came in the presence of Solomon and sat with him and visited him. The temple had money changers who took Gentile money and touched it and changed it into money that in currency that could be spent in the Jewish temple. Ruth laid at Boaz's feet. Was Boaz unclean? And so one scholar, Ben Witherington, he says there was no formal law that strictly forbade Jews from associating with Gentiles. It was just that they had to be prepared to pay the price for doing so. The price was the risk of being ritually unclean. This would have involved washings and an additional sacrifice, a time of isolation from ethnic Israel. It was a cost that Jews did not want to pay. You hear that? Now, here's the thing about Peter. I think he's inconsistent in his theology of cleanliness. Whose house did he just leave? Simon, a Jewish man who was a tanner. Tanners touch dead animals. Did you one time hear Peter say to the Lord, I will not go stay with Simon the Tanner. Did you at one time hear him say, oh, no, Lord. Well, what made him be willing to step into a Tanner's house, but not Cornelius's house? If they both do things and tarry with things unclean, he's partial. He's partial. What does partial mean? It means to favor one side or a person over another. It means being biased or prejudiced towards one. It means to see in part and to make a judgment of the whole in light of the part. And so here's what Peter's doing. He's, I think he's double guilty. He's guilty because Simon is a tanner which could have made him unclean. And what Peter should have done was to also protest going into Simon's house. And he doesn't. He doesn't because the man is Jewish. And then he goes to Cornelius, who could have unclean food around the table. And he protests, not because of the uncleanliness. I think it's because of his partiality. He sees Gentile and makes a blanket judgment on him. I will not go there. That is what partiality is. It's being biased and a respecter of persons based on ethnicity. This is why it's so hard, beloved, because the sin beneath the sin is partiality, ethnic partiality. Look, y'all, we can't control the families we're born into. We can't control skin color. 
that God in his infinite wisdom, he chose to make you black. And he chose to make you white. And he chose to make you Asian. And he chose to make you Hispanic. And he chose to make you biracial. And all of this is beautiful in his sight. It reflects his beautiful diversity. Look in nature. You don't see one hue of green on any tree out there. If you get close enough, you will see a panoply of greens and yellows and browns. And it all showcases the beautiful creativity of our God. And when you look in a room and you see different hues and different family of origins and different backgrounds, you have to believe that this too is a gift of God to humanity and it displays his creativity. It displays his power. It displays his glory. And here is what the sin, and I'm calling it a sin of partiality does. It makes you and I look at certain ethnicities and cultures and we deem them worse than or less than our own. And it is from the pit of hell. It's wrong. And we can be like Peter. We give passes to people based on how they look. And we grant grace to people and overlook all the wrong things they do because of how they look. And it's partial. And we can be like Peter, where we don't want to pay the cost of being outed by our family of, of origin because we want table fellowship with people who don't look like them. And so ethnocentrism lives and it's passed down and it's learned. And this is what makes what God is doing here so difficult. Do you think those who found a redeemer were ignorant to this? They know, they know history. They know we live in Mississippi. They knew we stay in Jackson. They knew about World War II, the civil rights. They knew all of this. They knew about the problems of race in the church. They knew this, and yet they stood on this principle that we will be an intentionally multi-ethnic community of Christians committed to glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ in word and deed. They were committed and resolved. Now, why? Knowing that it's difficult, why? And here's the thing. It's not because it's cool. It's not because it's trending. It's not because it's hip. They were compelled because God commands it. Which moves us to, into my second point, the impartiality of God. And I will use this word carefully. It demands it. It demands that if anyone names the name of Jesus, that you journey towards multi-ethnic fellowship with believers. This is not a periphery thing. This is an implication of the gospel. 
where God is uniting Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, all things under him who is the head, and that is Jesus. Now, God is not like us. He's, he's not partial. It shows up in all of Scripture, Romans 2.11, for there is no partiality with God. James 3.17, the wisdom that comes to us from above is pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Leviticus 19.15, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor and you shall not be partial to the great. But in righteousness, you shall judge your neighbor. Deuteronomy 117, you shall not be partial in judgment when you hear cases small or great. Consider the plagues in Egypt. You remember that last one? When God says the death angel's going to come through? God did not give Israel a pass. He did not say, oh, you're Jewish. We good. I'm just going to send the death angel over the doors of the Egyptians. And I just want them to put blood on their doorpost so that he might pass over. That ain't what God said. You know what God told Israel? I'm coming through Egypt and nobody who ain't got no blood on Nado, they dying, the firstborn. God was not partial to the Israelites. There is enough sin in Egypt, and guess what? When I come through in my pure holiness, I am not a respecter of persons. Now, you're my chosen people, and you're going to have to trust me, and you're going to have to act by faith. By faith, you will kill this animal. By faith, you will put the blood over your doorpost. By faith, you will eat, and by faith, whatever you don't eat, you will consume. But make no mistake about it, I am not partial to you. I'm for me. And so what you see in Scripture is he's covenantal. He loves Israel with a covenantal love, but Israel can try other people, but they can't try God. God told them, y'all come in my land and think y'all can just do what y'all want to do. I'll kick you out just like I kicked the nations out before you. What you start to see in the Bible, he's impartial. And humans have to catch up with God. And that's what happens in our passage. Peter journeys. Do you remember the no, the no, the no? Do you remember the first thing out of his mouth? You know how unlawful it is for Jews to be in the home of Gentiles. You hear that? That's a journey. That is Peter going from ethnocentrism. That is Peter being in a space of partiality. And then you hear what Peter says. He goes on to say, and it's right there in verse 34, now I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. That's a journey, y'all. That's maturity happening right in before our eyes. He goes from one thing to being impartial. And here's the question that we need to ask. How does he get there? I think three things. The first this is God's idea. This idea comes down from above. The vision comes from above. The sheet comes from above. The animals come from above. The voice telling him to rise and to kill and to eat comes from above. In other words, these ideas aren't coming out of the head of Peter, but they're coming from the heart of Peter's God. 
I think what God wants Peter to feel and to desire is exactly what Jesus felt in John chapter 4. John chapter 4, Jesus goes to Samaria, and he's hungry, he's thirsty, he's tired, and his disciples go into town to get him something to eat, and they come back, Master, eat! Master, eat! And Jesus says, I have food that you don't know about, and my food is to do the will of God who sent me. My food is to have fellowship with this woman that you would have nothing to do. That fills and delights my soul like a good old steak cooked just right. And so Jesus, he eats that day by doing the will of God, by having table fellowship with this woman. And what God is doing for Peter, Peter, I know you're hungry but I want you hungry for people. This is God's idea. This is God's masterful hand, y'all. All of these events that culminate with Peter getting there on day four to a room full of Gentiles who were there ready to hear what Peter has to say, this is all being orchestrated by God, who is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. Nothing happens except through him and by his will. And what you see God doing through these visions is carrying out his will, his ways, his purposes. And it starts with a vision and an angel who comes to Cornelius in Caesarea, which would have been 30 miles away from Joppa, where Peter was the day before he appears to Peter. Now, Cornelius is a Gentile. He's non-Jewish. He's a centurion, which means he commands a group of 100 soldiers. And his 100 soldiers are a part of a cohort. Now, a cohort in, in Roman armies was 600 soldiers, which means 600 soldiers would each have one centurion over them, and those 600 would be a cohort. The cohort that Cornelius is under is called the Italian cohort. So he would have been one centurion of six commanding 600 soldiers. And his name is Cornelius, which if you would have walked through Caesarea or that area that day, you might have met 10,000 people named Cornelius. Now why? Because years before, a Roman general named Cornelius Sulla won the first large-scale Roman civil war. And in his honor, after he freed 10,000 slaves, those slaves took his name. This is the man who gets a vision, an angel, from the Lord. He's called a man of prayer. He's called a God-fearer. He's called one who gives alms. He cares for the poor. And all of a sudden, one day, the Lord says, Cornelius, your prayers have been heard. I hear you. I see you. And I'm answering you. And here's what you do. You take some of your servants and some of your soldiers, and you have them go on a day's journey to Joppa, there's a man named Simon, not Simon the Tanner. Don't bring him to me. 
You bring Simon Peter, who's living in Simon the Tanner's house, you bring him to me, and he's going to preach. And this all happened on day one around 3 p.m. So Cornelius' servants leave. They make the one-day journey. On the next day, as Peter is going up, not knowing that these servants are coming to get him, he's up hungry and praying, and God says, I'm going to come to him now. And Peter revolted. He says, no, I will not. No, I will not eat. And he's inwardly perplexed. And as his vision ends, that's exactly when the men show up who were sent from Cornelius the day before. And so Peter is still resisting in his heart. And finally, the Holy Spirit says, hey, it's a man outside. This is not for play. You're not just seeing things. This is for the real deal. You need to go with him. And he says, oh, you're coming for me. Tell me how you got here. And then they recount to him the story of God coming to their master a day before. And so Peter invites them to stay. They hang out and then they make the day's journey back. Do y'all see all of this is being orchestrated by God so that when they show up and, and, and Cornelius has invited Mama Nim and Grandmama Nim and little cousin Nim, he got a whole house full of Gentiles and they're positioned to hear Peter. This screams that someone bigger than Cornelius and someone bigger than Peter is orchestrating all of this. And I think the real reason why Peter is changed it's because someone else took a journey far greater than his. He made a 30-mile journey to go preach the good news to Gentiles, people who were not like him. But Peter begins his sermon. In verse 36, as for the word that God sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. You see what Peter is saying? Peter is saying someone else far greater than me took a journey. And his name is Jesus. And Jesus could have chosen to only associate with people like him forever. And that would have meant that he would have only enjoyed eternal fellowship with the two other persons that are just like him, and that's the Father and that's the Spirit. But Jesus, for the joy set before him, chose to leave the right hand of the Father and to make a long journey through the uterus of Mary, being conceived by the Spirit, having Gentile and Jewish blood in his veins because in his bloodline is Rahab the prostitute and Ruth the Moabite. And when Jesus came to the earth, he did good to all. He healed Gentiles. He found faith in Gentile centurions. He went and preached the good news to a half-breed Samaritan. He was upset when in the court of the Gentiles, the Jews had made that their money-changing place, which meant that Gentiles could not come into the one place of the temple where they were supposed to. That's the place where Jesus got mad and whipped 
and turn tables. It was because his people were showing partiality. And this same Jesus came and he preached good news to the Jews. He pointed them to the reality that someone greater than Moses, someone greater than Solomon was here. He healed their sick. He ridded them of their diseases. He cured them of their demon possession. He gave them food that what you start to see in the person and work of Jesus when he came to the earth, he was impartial. He loved all. And then this Jesus was a better, bigger brother than any Jew. The Jews would not want to be ceremonially unclean. Jesus goes a step further. I will be cut off and cast out of the city. If it means that I can pay the price for your sin, I will lay down my life. To, to rescue and to redeem this Jesus, I can imagine would come to Cornelius and tell him, Cornelius, you're named after a famous general who gave your family freedom, but I'm a general too. And I command legions and legions of angels. And what I chose to do on the cross was to not summon them. I chose to on the cross to become sin for you so that you and me can become the righteousness of God. It's not a coincidence that in the next chapter of Acts, believers were first given the new name. Christian. You see, I'm convinced that Peter sees that someone else named Jesus made a greater journey to rescue the world. Jew, Greek, slave, free, male, female, from a greater slavery, their sin and death and the grave, to pay a price to give us life. And God validates this, that as Peter is preaching, the same Holy Spirit who fell on the Jews in the earlier part of Acts falls on them right there, and they testify and bless the Lord. And Peter says, wait a minute, they believe like we do. They receive the Holy Spirit like we do, and we're different. We eat different things. We worship different ways, but what we have in common is the Spirit and our faith. What prevents them from being baptized just like us? They get baptized. This is God's way of validating the work of Christ. You see, I'm convinced that only Christians have the power to love impartially and across ethnic lines. It's the way of the cross. What makes this a value to us? Why is this a priority to us? Because it's a priority of God. And we want to walk in step with the gospel. May we be resolved as a church that this is precious. May we be resolved as a church that this is not up for debate. That this is a healthy value. I'll close with this last point. What are some of the blessings of impartial, multi-ethnic fellowship? Look at the last verse. After they're baptized in the name of Jesus, they asked Peter to remain for some days. 
And I think this is a bookend. If you go back and look at the way chapter 9 ends, and Peter stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner, this section ends with, I think, Peter staying in Caesarea in the house of Cornelius for many days. In other words, they linger. Peter stays. What I would love to do to see and to hear what they talked about. Here are some blessings. I think being an impartial, multi-ethnic fellowship, it gives a clear conscience for those who have been partial. Peter's already repented. He told them, I was this way, but I now see Christ has atoned for his past sins, but he is presently walking in step with the gospel, to use language from Galatians. And this is a blessing of impartial, multi-ethnic fellowship. Those who have behaved partially towards those who are different can look at the cross and you can see atonement for your sins, but you can also do what Peter says right there in verse 34. He says, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. In other words, I think what Peter is saying, it's not enough to just believe that the gospel has atoned for your sins, that what impartial fellowship can do for you now in the present is give you a clear conscience. Your sins are atoned for, and you are endeavoring a new way of living. I also think being in impartial, multi-ethnic fellowship can be a source of healing for those who suffered prior ethnic trauma. Here's what I mean. Many of you know my mother, my mother's mother um, was the help for a family that lived a couple streets from here. And so if you've talked to my mom, she talks about what it was like growing up knowing that her mother spent all parts of the day taking care of white people's kids. And when my grandmother came home, my mom felt like they got the leftovers. That was traumatizing for her. So much so that we grew up in all black neighborhoods. We went to an all black college. I went to an all black high school. It traumatized and shaped the way that my mother viewed the world. 10 years ago, fast forward, We were at a wedding reception, and it was in a prominent neighborhood in our city where it's majority white, and my mom and dad do what they do. Y'all know Big L and Loretta will cook. They love to cook, love to serve. For this reception, they cooked, and at this reception, they served, and the bride was half Australian, half white, the groom African-American from South Carolina. So you can imagine at this reception, the people who were there. And all of a sudden, the African-American grandmother of the groom walks up to my mom and asks my mom, baby, how long you been working for them? And that was a trigger. Because here we are in 2010, 
And this lady thinks my mom is still the help for the white man. And all of a sudden, my mom plays along with it, right? She starts to play. Well, I've been working for her for 15 years, right? And, and, and she plays along with it. And finally, she says, I'm just playing. I'm not the help. That's my brother in Christ. That's my elder. I'm here serving him because I love them. They're not paying me a dime. How could she move from trauma to being able to jokingly talk about this? It's because of this church. That what God does through multi-ethnic churches is he uses people like you and me as we pursue Jesus and love neighbor and love God. He is pleased to use us to undo bitter memories. God does that in these settings. We also get to learn more about God from different image bearers and cultivate a relationship of interdependency. One author says that the word that's used here for the people gathered in Cornelius' home is a gathering for worship. Cornelius has called a worship service in his house, and on this day, the guest preacher is a Jewish man. And Peter gets to hear the apostle, I mean, Cornelius gets to hear the apostle Peter, who has been walking with Jesus, commissioned by Jesus. And Peter gets to preach to Gentiles who were itching for the truth of the good news. And Peter gets to stay and linger and probably eat some pork and probably eat some shrimp and probably sing some songs that he had never sung and probably hear, wait a minute, God came, meet, it came to me in a vision and Cornelius says, brother, you a day later a dollar short. He came to me first, right? And they get to go back and forth. You think you got the corner on God because of who you are? Look at him. He's sewn up to me and they get to celebrate beautiful diversity right there in that room. When we come together and sing songs by authors you don't know and hear people pray in their own culture, in their own ways, and see people dress differently, and people tell of the stories of how God has been at work in their families, we get to see him through different lenses. And you know who gets to be glorified and more beautiful? God, who does it all. We were at a wedding yesterday. And the groom, African-American guy, friend of mine, the bride, Hispanic. And man, what I tell you, we just people watched at, at the wedding. At one point, we just got in the cut and just watched. Because we saw your Northeast Jackson crowd. I saw dudes I grew up with. And then those Hispanic families came in there, man, with them starch jeans and them big old Texas belt buckles with a whole name written from here to here. 
and them big hats on, and they was not trying to dress like nobody in there but their own selves. And we just stepped back at that wedding, and we praised the Lord for beautiful diversity at that wedding. And let me let you in on a secret. There's another wedding coming. It's when the church walks down the aisle, and Jesus arrays us in beauty and splendor. And we will spend eternity with people from every nation and tribe and tongue. If you think heaven is just going to be black folk, you're mistaken. If you think heaven just going to be white folk, you're mistaken. If you think heaven just going to be people who speak English, you're mistaken. That what we're going to gain in heaven, in the new heavens and the new earth, is life with Jesus forever, and we get to see his beautiful diversity and beautiful redemption on display forever. It's going to be beautiful, y'all. And we get to preach to the world. The world sees enough division. Here's enough about division. Here's enough about ethnocentricity. Here's enough about separation and fighting. And what we hold up to the world is beautiful, diverse unity around the cross of Christ. And when the world looks at former enemies living and worshiping and loving and forgiving, the world becomes curious, what is the glue? How did you do it? What is binding you together? And we can say it is the blood of Christ and the work of Christ alone. Let me introduce you to him who's changed us all. It preaches to the world of the beauty of Jesus. That's my prayer for us, Redeemer, that we would value this, lean into this, pray for this, decision-make around this, that we would fight for this, that we would learn from one another as we seek to live out the implications of the work of Jesus. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we bless you. We love you. And as we prepare our hearts to sing and to take the supper together, Father, I pray that we will do so understanding that you are smiling upon us. You've united us to yourself, and therefore we are united to one another in this beautiful bond of peace. Help us, Lord, to not work against that. I pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.